0: This is Psalm 129, which is on the back page of the service sheets or page 624 in the Bibles, in the pews. And it's another of the songs of ascent that we've been thinking about on these Sunday mornings. So Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Ploughmen have ploughed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Angela, for that reading. Uh, Many of us, probably not all of us, many of us will have one of these, uh, an iPhone or similar sort of device from Apple. And Steve Jobs was the creator of all such uh, gadgets. Uh, He died over 10 years ago now, surprisingly, but um, he was a very well-known figure in the world of technology and more generally, uh, and obviously a great entrepreneur in devising such devices that millions around the world, hundreds of millions, use and depend upon for their appointments and their maps and their calendars and their uh, photos and cameras and so on. Everything, everything apart from the kitchen sink, really, isn't it? And because of Steve Jobs' success in designing uh, such desirable and important items, he was listened to widely. And one of his most important speeches was his Stanford commencement address in 2005 at the university very close to the Apple campus in California. This key passage cuts to the heart, really, of what he said to the Stanford students. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Some of that we can uh, uh, assent to and agree with. Um, But ultimately it is a very strong expression of individualism, isn't it? That other people are holding you back and you and your inner voice are the most important thing to drive you forward. Quite a strong expression of the individualism of our age. Not all of us will... Uh, completely go along that sort of uh, strong individualistic line, but we're all influenced by it and by the reverberations of individualism around us. Well, today's psalm, uh, which I'm going to need to get the text of, is difficult to understand uh, if you don't have uh, more of a communal mindset. Thank you, Mark, for just bringing that over. I lost, lost my server sheet at some point. Thank you, it's very helpful. Uh, today's psalm we have to read with a communal mindset, thinking about it, how it means. Uh, as a community, rather than simply as individuals. And that's evident from the first verse of the psalm. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say. This isn't simply a psalm of an individual, but a psalm of the nation as a whole, as a collectivity, not simply of individuals. There are plenty of psalms which are very much individual psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, That's primarily an individual psalm. Psalm 51, the psalm of David's repentance after sleeping with Bathsheba, very much an individual psalm of repentance. Uh, But there's many other psalms that are much more communal, and these psalms of ascent that we're going through during the summer uh, are certainly communal psalms that have to be read as the song of a nation. The me, therefore, we read in this verse is a collective me. Uh, They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. Uh, let the whole nation say, not simply uh, one individual speaking of their own personal experience, but of the national collective experience. Because the affliction that referred to from Israel's youth is the collective experience as well. Uh, they have greatly oppressed me, verse 2 says, from my youth. Referring to the captivity of each uh, Israel in Egypt, in its youth, in its early stages as a nation. And it goes on, verse three, the plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Uh, the plowmen referring not just to the king of Egypt who oppressed Israel and its youth, but also to other oppressors of the Israelite nation during the years, during the centuries. Egypt, Midian, Ammon, Edom, Edom Philistia, Tyre, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and so on. Plowmen plowing their furrows, uh, sort of digging deep into the back of Israel as they waged war in and around and against it. The church can also say these words of the psalm. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Israel was imprisoned in Egypt in its youth, and the church was imprisoned under oppression under Rome in its youth and suffered many persecutions in its early days. Without pretense, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me to his disciples and most of the apostles certainly died as martyrs under the Roman Empire Roman persecutions followed under emperors like Nero Aurelius, Decius, Gallus, Valerian and Diocletian and so the church can certainly say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let the church say the oppression of the church is not simply also confined to those pages of distant history not just a matter of ancient history but continues to be a matter for the church today the church the church, christian church is the most oppressed religion in the world and the pew research organization says that there's 144 countries uh, out of 200 odd so 3 quarters of countries in the world today where there's at least uh, some persecution of christians while open doors uh, the christian charity found that in 2021 last year there were 5,600 Christians it identified as having been murdered for their faith around the world and 6,000 detained or imprisoned for their faith with another 4,000 being kidnapped. And that was just in that one year of 2021. Much of that's in the 11 countries that Open Doors identifies as the places of most severe persecution, like Afghanistan uh, under the new Taliban regime and North Korea under the Kims. And Somalia. Over 5,000 church buildings and church facilities destroyed in 2021, along with all of those lives, individual lives affected. And so the church can certainly say with Israel, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. It might be difficult for us to say those words simply with an individual mindset if we haven't experienced great persecution ourselves. But knowing that we are one body with other Christians around the world, we can certainly say those words collectively. If one member suffers, all suffer together, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. How do we react to that suffering apart from simply acknowledging it, apart from simply being aware of it, which itself is a very important thing for us to do as believers in the Western world? Well, Psalm 129 gives us two important reactions to the suffering of God's people. Firstly, the news that God rescues his people, and secondly, that God repays oppressors. God rescues his people, uh, as we see in those opening verses. They greatly oppressed me, verse two, from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. And verse three, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked, we are continuing following these Israelite pilgrims with these songs of ascent as they wind their way up to Jerusalem, and we can imagine them singing this particular psalm, 129, and imagine a certain defiance as they get to those buts uh, in the original Hebrew. Uh, but they have not gained the victory for me. But the Lord is righteous; He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. The oppressors have not gained the victory, however bad their oppression has been over Israel down the centuries. Why? Because of God's righteousness, as verse 4 says. The Lord is righteous. It's because of his character that his people have not suffered ultimate defeat at the hands of their oppressors. The chains have been broken by God. He did set them free from Egypt in its youth, He did set them free from Babylon. The church likewise enjoys such possibility of defiance. Despite Roman persecutions, the church grew and grew. Despite modern persecutions, the church grows and grows. We say, verse 2, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was claimed in an early third century apologetic attributed uh, by some to Tertullian of Carthage. The cords of persecution under Rome were cut, and despite that persecution, the church was birthed uh, with new seed and given further life. And ultimately, freedom was obtained with those edicts of Serdica and Milan in 311 and 313. The church had the cords cut of the oppressor of Rome and enjoyed freedom of worship. But our freedom depends on more than simply physical freedom from physical persecutors like the Roman Empire or modern regimes today. Any Christian, whether they've been freed from such persecution, whether they're actually still living under it, as indeed many millions of Christians do today, can say, Psalm 129, that the Lord is righteous and he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Because our oppression is spiritual as well as simply physical, and because of the cross, we have the definitive victory over the oppressor. Not simply oppressors in the world, but an oppressor in the spiritual realms. He broke the cords at the cross of the wicked one forever, of Satan. And he freed not just one people there, but he gave the possibility of freedom to all people everywhere freedom from Satan and from sin. Through Christ, the prison door is wonderfully flung open. The shackles are released, the harness is taken off, and we're given the chance to walk free. Would that we all did indeed just take that opportunity. He's done the hard work. The easy task remains of simply walking out of the prison through repentance and belief. The Lord is righteous. He has cut us free from the cords of the wicked one. Now, I said there's a note of defiance to those buts in the first half of the psalm. And defiance certainly was the title of a 2008 film made about the exploits of the Bielski partisans in Eastern Europe during the Second World War, who were a group of uh, Jews who freed other Jews and worked in the Belarusian forests um, under the noses of the Nazis who were invading Russia at the time. They expressed defiance to the invaders and defiance to their plans to murder uh, the Jewish people in that place. And the escapees who were freed by those partisans during the war could say a very immediate psalm too, but they have not gained the victory over me. A very immediate but of verse four, the Lord is righteous, he has cut me free from the cause of the wicked. Well, Christians, we can say just as viscerally as those freed from the immediacy of the Holocaust, that we have been freed from the cords of the wicked, freed from death and hell, from the reign of Satan. And so we can say, where death is your victory? Where are your chains? They are taken away in Christ. God rescues his people. And God also repays the oppressors. And we see that in the second half of the verse, of the psalm rather. May all who hate Zion, verse 5 says, be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In those four verses, there are three imprecations or calls for God's judgment in prayer. A call in verse five for shame, the shaming of the oppressors. In verse six for the withering or the death of the oppressors. And in verse eight for the curse or the withholding of blessing on the oppressors. Now there's a danger when we read imprecatory psalms like this, uh, thinking that their personal vindictive pettiness and slightly turning our noses up at them. But by contrast to that characterization, actually psalms like this, which prey imprecations on enemies, are communal, as we've already said. They're not simply individual pettiness. They're equitable. They're just. They're not disproportionate. They're not calling for a judgment on the oppressors which wasn't being meted out by the oppressors themselves in the first place on God's people. They're mediated by God himself rather than inflicted by the prayer, their prayers to God that he would judge rather than prayers that he'd strengthened us to do the judging. And they're faithful as well to God's promise that he will bring about justice, not concocted by the Israelites out of their own imaginings. So they're communal, they're equitable, they're mediated by God and they're faithful. And therefore, we can receive them and rejoice in them. The oppressors of God's people had sought the shame and the death and the curse on those people. And now those judgments are prayed in return on them. And God does act on those present; has acted on such prayers down history. He has showed his mercy in saving Israel on numerous occasions and shows his judgments in repaying the oppressors of his people. And both of those actions, both showing mercy, And showing judgment do glorify his name. He is given glory in both of those aspects of his character, both mercy and justice. But you might think, well, hang on, that the oppressors, whoever they are, they're people too. Don't they deserve mercy? Uh, Don't they uh, merit some consideration in God's book of mercy? Well, yes, they do. They they certainly are people and they certainly do uh, count as part of the world that Jesus died for on the cross. And therefore, in the greater judgment to which this psalm points us, uh, there is a possibility for escape even from those oppressors. In in home groups in John, uh, in the term ahead, which we're continuing in, uh, in the coming term, I hope I'm not going to give you a spoiler by saying I'm really looking forward to the end of the term and getting to chapter 12 of John. And we get to the explosive moments in John's gospel when some Greeks who are seeking Jesus come and try and find him. And that's the catalyst for Jesus' his declaration when he says, the hour has come, the hour which hasn't yet come, which hasn't yet come, which hasn't yet come throughout John's gospel. Suddenly the hour does come when those Greeks seek him. And he says at that point, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out a prophecy that at the cross, two things are going on, both a liberation uh, from the power of darkness, showing mercy to all people, but also a seismic defeat for the powers of darkness and casting out the ruler of this world, Satan. Who is it above all that hates Zion in the words of this psalm in verse five? All who hate Zion. Well, the one who really ultimately hates Zion is Satan, the prince of this world. He is the one who oppresses the saints in every age, both in the past and in the present. And it's his power that will ultimately be cast out. As he sought and still seeks the shame and the death and the curse on God's people, so those things are meted out to him at the cross. The mercy that was shown by the Bielski family to those Jews being liberated in Belorussia in the Second World War was really wonderful. And the mercy shown likewise by the Allied forces as they liberated the concentration camps in Auschwitz and Belsen and Treblinka and Dachau was wonderful, wonderful mercy being shown to those being liberated. Also wonderful is the justice that was meted out at Nuremberg. And there's almost a movement in this psalm from the freedom of Auschwitz to the justice and the judgment of Nuremberg. When we think of Christian persecution across the world, both in the present and in the past, especially if we have personal experience of it, we can feel the emotion of the imprecations here all the more powerfully. It is right and good to pray prayers like this. That's uh, God would bring justice, remembering these prayers are, as I said, communal, they're equitable, they're mediated by God, not by us, and they're faithful to God's promise. But we also need to remember that today is a day of salvation for all people, whether they're the ones suffering or the ones meeting out the suffering. It's not yet the day of judgment. The day of judgment will come, and... We're certainly praying that in as we pray the second half of this psalm. But today is the day of salvation, even for the worst persecutor. And so we reserve, when we pray this psalm, we reserve the true heat of verses 5 to 8 for the deceiver himself, for Satan, the father of lies, by whose actions all persecution and oppression now and in the past occurs we'll stop there and we'll close in prayer especially remembering brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering oppression the oppression referred to in this psalm not praying this just as individuals but as a congregation as one body with them remembering that we suffer as they suffer so let's pray Heavenly Father, our hearts mourn when we think of what does happen to your people in other parts of the world, which we can barely imagine in this country. We thank and praise you that they have not gained the victory over us. Thank you that all who hate Zion will be turned back in shame. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, you would hasten the day of the Lord's return and soften the hearts of his enemies in the meantime. In Jesus' name.
0: Amen.